I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our reading this morning. You can find our text on page 832 of the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, page 832. We're in Matthew uh, chapter 26. We left off uh, last week uh, at uh, the, the low point of this meal on this Thursday night that Jesus has with his disciples. Uh, we saw sort of the, uh, the bitterness of the betrayal uh, that Judas commits. What we really didn't focus on at all last week was the meal itself. What's going on? in the, uh, the narrative arc of Matthew's account of the final days of the life of Jesus. What's going on at this meal, at this celebration of the Passover? Uh, we have entered into a new section, a final section of Matthew, that's predominantly narrative. It's predominantly Matthew telling us what happened, who said what, when, where, uh, why, how. Right? We're following sort of Matthew's spotlight uh, on Jesus and the events uh, of these final few days. He takes us... Uh, to the final part of this meal, uh, slows down a bit as we're taking this Thursday and this Friday in the life of Jesus uh, very slowly. You see, our text is going to, to end, and we'll begin next week with them uh, singing a hymn and proceeding to the Mount of Olives. This hymn is uh, the final uh, kind of closing of their celebration of the Passover meal. So we have before us this morning, in just a few verses, of a chock full of old theology, of new meaning, and of modern-day application. So we're going to slow down this morning and look at that original Passover meal and what it means for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together uh, as the people of God. Would you follow along with me? Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, we come to your table week in and week out, and we love to partake of this sacrament. Uh, It is dear to us because we know it is dear to you. We pray as you show us in these few verses meaning and significance and application, that as we take notes about the supper, O Lord, we would not lose sight of you. That as with everything, we would have our eyes set upon Christ. We would have our eyes set on the gospel of your Son, the news that he has died for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray that each of us in our hearts would believe and so take and eat of that which Jesus uh, has done in the forgiveness of sins. Speak to us, O Lord, in these few minutes for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are about to die... What would your final meal be? If you could pick out that last meal, that final meal you were going to have, what what exactly would you want on that plate? There's an author named Jay Rayner, and he wrote an entire book to answer this question. He wrote a book, and, and his premise in the book was that your meal 
isn't just going to be something you like. It's going to be something that represents things from your past and your history. You probably would pick out in this thought experiment, you probably pick out sort of your favorite meal as a kid, right? And then maybe a meal from your favorite vacation as a family, and then sort of a dish from this sweet part of your life, something memorable. And he stitches together his meal. It's eight courses long, right? Uh, from eight different parts of his life. Because he thinks if I'm in my final meal, I'm, I'm just going to look to the past, right? You don't really need to worry about your future if it's your final meal, right? I mean, who cares if you have a Coke or a Diet Coke, right? I mean, it's your last meal. You don't have to worry about carbs or cholesterol or salt or sugar. I mean, all that, all the good stuff we're all worried about, right? Because there's no future. It's your last meal. Jesus makes an interesting choice for his last meal. Because in it, he does look at the past. He goes way back in the past about what does all this meal mean? What, do, what, do, what does each dish represent and, and signify? So he goes way back in the past for his meal. But unlike what uh, that author Rainer, unlike what you or I would do, he also looks to the future. He prepares and hosts and serves a final meal that looks both to the past and to the future for himself and for his people. That's the other difference between his final meal. Our final meal would be all about us, right? What's my favorite food? His final meal is all about us. I want to show you this morning that in his last meal, Jesus looks to the past and the future in order to strengthen our faith in him. He does something here over 2,000 years ago that still helps us this very day. He looks back and he looks forward in order to strengthen our faith in him. What I want to show you this morning, we're going to work through the text so we're going to look at some courses. I'm not going to give you eight courses. Don't worry. Uh, we're not going to have eight points this morning. We're going to do a three-course meal. And I want to look at what Jesus does through this metaphor of courses. And we're going to see a, the first course is the meal that was. What was going on back then? The second course is the meal that is. What's going on right now? And then the final course is the meal that is to come. That's the meal that this table looks forward to. So our first course, verses 26 to 28, the meal that was. So Jesus begins uh, this institution of the Lord's Supper by looking at the past. This meal all has, all, it's, it has an old setting that he is going to inject with new meaning. But I want you to show you the old part here, the old setting. Now Matthew doesn't give us all that much because Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience and so they're filling in all the gaps in these verses, that's kind of hard for us to fill in. He does give us a couple clues, a couple hints. Verse 19 from last week, we see the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So we know this is the Thursday afternoon leading into the Thursday evening, in which the faithful Jewish families would begin to prepare for the Passover celebration uh, there in Jerusalem. The big part of that, of course, is the sacrifice of the lambs. Looking all the way back to Exodus and the sacrificial lamb in, in Exodus. So too now in Jerusalem this Thursday afternoon, uh, it was mostly the men's job to take the lamb to the temple and have them sacrificed. That was, sort of, that, that was the afternoon task. right? If you can think about what goes on in your house before the Thanksgiving meal, right? People have different tasks and roles to get everything ready. 
Generally speaking, the men would go to have these lambs all sacrificed at the temple. The women would uh, be preparing other elements of the meal. They'd be preparing the bitter herbs. Uh, they would prepare the bread. Uh, they would prepare uh, the wine. We'll see some details about the wine in a second. They prepare other parts of the meal. And so there's all this almost ritual of preparation right, that they would go through as they're preparing this Passover meal. At sundown, uh, they gathered together in this home that had been uh, prepared at Jesus' uh, direction. And we read in verse 26, now as they were eating. So they've begun to eat uh, the Passover meal. But what happened at the beginning is the host of the meal, which was often the father right, of the house, uh, would have everybody there. They would, he would begin uh, with a blessing. And then, as, as was tradition, as was instruction, uh, the son or one of the youngest uh, men present would ask, why is this night different than any other night? What's so special about this night that we've worked so hard to prepare for? The father would then answer the question. The host would go and tell the story of the Passover using the elements there on the table. So they're both eating and their, their instruction as sort of props or object lessons for the host as he's telling the story of the history of God's people. So these disciples and Jesus would have grown up year by year, every year with this tradition, every year with this ritual, uh, every year with this liturgy of a host beginning a meal, of them eating together, of him telling the account of the exodus uh, out of Egypt, and the Father sort of using the elements, holding them up, pointing to them. What jumps off the page here at the very beginning, if Jesus is the one taking bread, if he's taking the cup, then he's the one functioning as the host. He's the one serving the meal. He's the one doing all the explaining. He's the one talking about what God did in this plague and that plague and and what happened that first Passover night. He is functioning in the fatherly host role at the meal. And everything's going according to plan. This is a normal meal. All the disciples are like, yeah, okay, this is what my dad used to say growing up. This is what the host always says, sort of going through this very significant meal And so Matthew tells us, Jesus took bread, which would be normal. He blesses it. The the word Eucharist, right, comes with this next word, giving thanks. Then he gives it to the disciples, says, take and eat. This is all normal. They're taking the bread, the host is doing his role, and then comes the showstopper. And he says, this is my body. And all the guys are thinking, that's not part of the liturgy, right? (laughs) No one's been saying that for the last thousands of years. Jesus, into this old setting, injects something new and different and radical. He is reinterpreting the symbolic teaching of the meal itself. And he's not just reinterpreting it, he is redefining it. It's not just a sort of a new rabbi with a different interpretation. It's not saying the interpretation was wrong. Now something new is here. Something different is here. Someone is being described and pictured in this meal that is different than anything you've ever heard. So broken bread, passed out, distributed for them to eat. This is my body. After the bread uh, comes the cup. Verse 27, Matthew says he took a cup. We can go back and, and look at how the Passover was, uh, was celebrated in those days. And there was more than just one cup. There were multiple cups of wine. 
When you, look, when you begin to look at the tradition of the Passover meal, some things are, are demanded, instructed in Scripture. Right? There's the lamb, uh, there's the, uh, the bread, uh, there's the bitter herbs. Then over time and tradition, other elements are added. And so there are four cups of wine at this point. And each, of the cup, of, each cup represented something different. You can go back, if you want to go read later on, but you go back and read Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, is God's initial promise to Moses about how he's redeeming the people. And in those words, God gives four particular promises. And the Jewish tradition was to assign one of those promises to each of the four cups that are partaken during the meal. So God promises, I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and I will take you. And so throughout the meal, sort of part of the meal begins with one cup, the beginning, the blessing. Over the second cup is the telling of the story of the Exodus. Uh, the third and the fourth cup, sort of as we proceed towards the closure of the meal. And so historians and scholars believe that Jesus is likely taking the third cup at this point. This is where we're at in the meal, they think. The third cup is called the cup of redemption. It's also called the cup of blessing at times. So over this cup of t- redemption, Jesus takes it. One thing about this cup, it, it was served. And this is a little bit gross, maybe, to our modern day sensitivities. But it was usually served warm. Because what else is warm? Blood. So just the temperature, the the look and the temperature of the liquid in the cup reminds them of the the sacrificial blood. The blood of the lamb, of course. They've just been in the temple. They've just seen this bloody sacrifice. They've remembered this. All of the Passovers of their lives. All the years and the the, the centuries and the millennia. Of course, it's just the blood of the lamb. And Jesus says, drink of it, all of you. And then he blows it up again. He says, this is my blood. (laughs) Again, they're... If you could put a me, our little emoji on this moment, right? It's the brain, the brain exploding emoji, right? What in the world are they thinking is going on with this new teaching of this meal? Now, clearly, as Jesus is going through this, the, the blood, though it is of a, a right color and temperature, it's not his literal blood. Not to be gruesome, but he's not putting his own blood into the cup, Right? The, the bread is, is just bread. It's always just bread. The stuff in the cup is, is always just wine in the cup. It doesn't uh, mysteriously turn into something else. There are not magic words spoken that turn the wine so it still tastes like wine, but it's sort of substance is something different. No. It's still wine. And yet Jesus says it is my body. It is my blood. It has what... Theologians call it a spiritual relationship between the sign and the thing that is signified. The blood serving as this new, or the cup rather, serving as this new sign of the blood. It's also been said that there's a sacramental union. We call this in, uh, in time and history uh, a sacrament. And there's this not literal union, but a sacramental or a spiritual relationship between the, the thing, the sign, and the thing that is signified. The new meaning Jesus gives the elements are that they are now a sign, but they're a sign for something different. For years, they've been a sign for something in the past, and now they're a sign for something that's going to happen tomorrow in the timeline of Christ. 
They also function these elements as a seal. I want you to see this in particular about the blood. Jesus explains the blood more than he explains the bread in verse 28. I use this illustration for all of our baptisms, right? The idea of a seal is like an official stamp on a document, right? You have to go get some, your signature notarized, right? That's like a seal that's saying it's real, it's authentic. That's the language that is used in the New Testament about the sacraments. They're like that official stamp, that official sign. So look how Jesus explains the blood. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant. It's covenantal blood, we might say. God has promised in His covenant that He will redeem His people. It takes a while. There's a lot of waiting. How do we know that promise is true? How do we know it's actually going to come to pass? How do we know it's actually going to happen? He gives a seal of His shed blood. We go back in the book of Exodus again, and we read in this section, Exodus 24, where the covenant is confirmed. And here's what we read in verse 8. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This seal of the verbal promise, assuring that all God says is true. He goes on in verse 28. It's my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Again, to our modern ears, this sounds a little bit much, right? But the idea of pouring out blood. And again, these disciples have just come from a temple, and it's the bloody scene in the temple. And all of these sacrifices are prepared to go out into the houses throughout Jerusalem for this meal. And all of this pouring out of blood is Jesus now saying it's the pouring out of of my blood. And Jesus, he speaks and Matthew records the bread here. But do you note he doesn't use the word wine? This is befuddled commentators for centuries. Is it really? Maybe it's not wine. Maybe it's something else. He calls it later the fruit of the vine. Let me just put you at ease. It's wine. It's maybe watered-down wine, but that, those, all those words mean wine. The reason he doesn't say it, I think, is because he's emphasizing the word cup. The word cup appears just a couple other times in Matthew, and it always refers, you'll remember, to suffering. In chapter 20, the mother of James and John, remember they want, she wants her sons to sit next to him? And Jesus says, you'll remember his answer in chapter 20, he says, are you able to drink the cup? that I am to drink, the suffering that he's going to endure. We're going to see next week in the Garden of Gethsemane, the other place we see the word cup appear in verse 39. We read, Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, the cup of suffering. So he, I believe, very intentionally uses the word of verse 27, not wine, but cup, to emphasize the suffering, the pouring out. And there's sort of this this image of a cup that God has, the Psalms speak of this, a cup of wrath that is stored up for the enemies of God. And Jesus will take and drink that cup. In fact, that cup will be poured out upon Him. And the pouring out then of His blood is the result of the wrath of God poured upon His head. 
But the pouring out of blood is supposed to be from a lamb. And Jesus says, no, it's his. Because he, as Scripture records, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's a reason multiple lambs had to be shed year in and year out, multiple sacrifices. They symbolized something. They didn't take anything away. Here is Jesus taking away the sins of the world. That's the final part of the new seal. It's of the covenant. It's poured out for many. And thirdly, it is for the forgiveness of sins. Why does he do it? It's for, to symbolize and to show forth. And when he does it, it's to actually accomplish the forgiveness of sins. This is promised again in the Old Testament. Look, these are the covenant promises of God. We read in Jeremiah 31, 31, where the prophet records a new covenant. And we read, God promised, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's why the blood is poured out. Go back to the Exodus. Go back to that 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, when the, the, the wrath of God was going to pass through Egypt. And God's people, by putting the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, are safe such that his anger and wrath pass over them. God will see the blood of the Lamb and He will pass over. The promise here is that God sees the blood of Jesus and He will pass over the people who are resting beneath. It's a sacrificial lamb. He is a lamb put forward as a substitute. This is the picture of the great exchange. When the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath is poured out upon Jesus instead of on us. He takes our place and instead gives us the cup of God's blessing. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. That God provides atonement for his people. He makes us right before him via a substitute. Someone in our place, someone in our stead, not a lamb. The very son of God. In all of this, in all of this old setting with new meaning, new signs, and new seals, Jesus is telling his people, a new and better Passover is here. A new and better lamb is here to lead you in a new and better exodus. Not out of physical Egypt, out of spiritual bondage. And all of this so that you and I would rest under the blood of the lamb. Jesus is proclaiming at this table, in this first course, in that meal, that he is the new Passover, the new lamb, the new and better Exodus, the new and better Moses. He's all of it wrapped into one. And who are we? We're the people that rest and sleep under the finished work of what Jesus has done for us. The application this morning is not for you to do anything, except take and eat. We'll do that in a minute. But it's for you to do nothing. To trust in the blood that has been shed on your behalf. To rest at peace under the blood of the Lamb of God. And that's just the first course. This verse, these verses, tell us very little about what we're supposed to do today. They tell us actually almost nothing about what we're supposed to do today. There's, there's questions over whether uh, there is even supposed to be the, the repeat of this. 
Or is it just like the foot washing and the anointing, sort of one-time events? Well, I want to show you secondly in our text that the second course is the meal that is. It's the meal that from then unto His return, we celebrate today in what's called the Lord's Supper. Your Bible probably has a heading to our, our section, our verses. My Bible says, Institution of the Lord's Supper. That's not, in the, that's not in the original. The translators put that in there so we have a sense of what we're reading. Uh, but it's an interesting choice, right? Because there's no word here of institute. There's no word of beginning. Uh, there's no word of the Lord's Supper. And yet here we see the seed of that institution that carries forward until today. Calling it an institution is to institute something is to begin or to establish. As we keep reading the Scripture, Luke gives us extra descriptions here. John gives us more words. We read in Paul more detailed instructions about how this is to be carried forward. We read in the book of Acts how the church celebrates the Lord's Supper. We see the testimony of history, uh, how the early Christians uh, observed it. Now, there's a lot of variety as we think about taking the Lord's Supper, isn't there? There's a, I mean, there's a whole lot of different ways that you've seen it done, that you've done in different traditions at different churches, right? You've had bread, you've had leavened bread, unleavened bread, you've had wine, you've had grape juice, you've stood up, you've sat down, you've had it served, you've walked forward, you've had a common cup, individual cups, a common loaf, individual loaves, you've done it once a week, every other week, once a month, once a quarter, once a week. I mean, it's a lot of variety, right? What we do, no matter what the variety is, is we take and eat, we take and drink. And Jesus gives something that is deeply personal. This personal participation in the very elements of his death. He doesn't say, go and watch from afar. Take and eat. These very intimate and personal and rather normal and ordinary actions of our personal participation in his death. Now, what's the purpose of all this? Why, why do we still do this today? Luke records Jesus telling him, do this in remembrance of me. Matthew and Mark leave that out. That's okay. They can record whatever they were led by the Holy Spirit to record. But Luke tells us, do this in remembrance of me. There's this theme of perpetual remembrance, right? I was writing this sermon uh, earlier this week on... Uh, the 11th day of this month, on September 11th. Uh, and that's a day of remembrance, isn't it? I mean, it's a day when we read newspaper articles and we uh, see posts online and we talk to friends and we use this phrase about 9-11, never forget, right? The hashtag, never forget, right? There's these moments in our nation's history. There's these moments in our personal lives, in our family kind of uh, narrative that we never want to forget. We want to commemorate them. We always want to remember them. But there's something more than just regular making sure you don't forget about the Lord's Supper. Remembering that theme is a covenantal theme. To remember is a covenant word. We ask God to remember certain things, don't we? Not that God forgets, but that by remembering, He shows Himself faithful to His covenant promises. We remember, and Jesus tells us how to remember. Not by writing articles, not by making social media posts, not by having backyard cookouts, right? We remember by ritual. We remember by doing something. We remember by regularly coming to the table and eating and drinking together. 
Tim Chester has this wonderful little book called Truth You Can Touch. And it's about the sacraments of, uh, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I mean, most of what we do in church is just words, right? Speak and listen, sing and pray. But then there's a couple things you touch. It's truth, water, wine, bread that you touch. And he says these, these rituals bring the past event of Christ's death into the present. And what's going on is that God is, is forming us as people as we go through the act of remembering. Or as he says it, the act of remembering actually changes us. It's a ritual of identity formation. God is forming who we are. Of all the things that we choose to remember week in and week out, we remember that somebody died 2,000 years ago. That forms us as the people of Jesus. Every time we do it. Think of how the Jewish identity was formed by the Exodus. That they were a needy, independent people in bondage and hated and enslaved by those around them. And God came and delivered them. And God saw and had pity and brought them out by the power of his own hand, led them through the wilderness into the promised land. They retold that story every single year of their lives at Passover. And it formed how they saw themselves how they looked at themselves in the mirror, how they thought of their fellow uh, people within the congregation. So too does the Lord's Supper form our identity. We are formed by the blood and body of Jesus. This is how he strengthens us, by pointing back. This is how the meal is not all about him, it's about us. Chester says, By remembering, we make the benefits of his death our own. The past becomes a present reality, and we are assured of the forgiveness of our sins. We are assured at this table of the forgiveness of our sins. Do you need to be strengthened today by looking back at the cross? Do you need to be reminded that God's covenant of grace has been sealed? Do you need to remember that the justice of God has been satisfied? That there's not more storms of His wrath to come that has all been poured out. Your sins have been forgiven. Every single one of them. The little ones and the really big ones. From the past and the present and the future, they're covered. Your debt has been erased. Every, every last drop of your debt has been erased. There's nothing left to pay. Your guilt is atoned for. Even the really shameful stuff that keeps you up at night, that's been washed clean. The punishment, it's complete. The sentence has been fulfilled. Your bondage has been broken. You are redeemed. All of that declared to you. A little sip of wine and a little morsel of bread. That's pretty good. There's one more course still to come. We've got to dive back into the text for this one. Verse 29 is the third course. The meal that is to come. The meal that is to come. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So here's our theme. 
Jesus is leaving and he's coming back. Have you heard a sermon about that recently, right? This is what Matthew 24 and 25 are about. He's leaving and he's coming back. He will not drink of it again. So he knows, timeline, he's not going to have another meal with them. It's not just he's not going to celebrate the Passover with them next year. So this is it. And yet he looks somehow to the future. In the Jewish tradition, the Passover meal was celebrated when they were in exile, mostly in individual homes. And then when they came to Jerusalem, when the the temple was rebuilt, the Passover meal was focused around the temple. That's where they went for for the sacrifices. That's where they gathered together until the temple was destroyed in the year 70. And then from then on out, as the people of uh, the Jewish people, as they scattered really to the ends of the earth, they continued to practice the Passover, now back in, in homes again. And they added a line. They added a line to the liturgy, to the, to the ritual. And towards the end of their annual Passover celebration, at the end of the fourth cup, they would look at each other and they would say, next year in Jerusalem. Next year, by God's faithfulness, by God's kindness, we will raise this cup together in Jerusalem. Even their Passover liturgy looked forward uh, to this messianic hope that God will still send the Messiah to bring us back to Jerusalem. Well, Jesus is that hope. Jesus says He will return. He will drink it, that is the, the wine, the cup, new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he's leaving. While he's gone, he leaves us with the Lord's Supper. When he comes back, he will drink of the cup new, made new in his Father's kingdom. He's ushering in the kingdom, and with him, will his, his people will with him eat of that meal forever. You see how he points back to strengthen us, and he points forward to strengthen the people of God. He tells these men who are about to endure deep anguish and suffering that one day Jesus will drink of the new cup with them. And he tells us, one day we will drink of that cup new with him. It's the fulfillment of the the prophet Isaiah, who spoke of a feast for all peoples of rich food and well-aged wine. Jesus has just told us two parables about weddings. Remember the, the parable of the wedding feast? where those who symbolize the Jewish leaders, they want to come. They're too busy, too important. So he said, go out to the street corners and get anybody you can and bring them in. And the invitation said, come to the wedding feast. We saw the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. Five of them not trusting him were not ready. Five trusting Christ were ready. And he tells us in the parable, they went in with him to the marriage feast. And there's, there's really no feast quite like a wedding feast, right? I remember our wedding uh, feast and all of that good food. And beforehand, before the wedding feast, Lindsay and I got to meet with the caterer, right? I don't know if you, know, you can remember that, you who are married. That's pretty cool. You go to hang out with the caterer and they let you sample all the food. And I mean, I wasn't involved in much wedding planning, to be honest, but I was definitely going to be there for that. <laughs> and just sampling everything I could, just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And man, I could not wait for the wedding feast. Dear friends, the Lord's Supper is that taste with the caterer. And the promise 
of a feast to come. You see, God gives us Jesus. And he just calls us to trust in Christ and walk by faith. But we're not very good at that. And he knows we're weak. And so he gives us the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, it's like an oasis in the desert that reminds us, pointing back and forward, of the cross that is accomplished for us and the feast that is to come. Today, we take and we eat and we drink. And we keep doing it until that day when we will eat and drink of it new with him forevermore. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know our weak frame. You, your promises are always true and are mighty and are sufficient. And yet we, as your feeble and frail children, struggle to believe them. And so we praise you that you give us truth that we can touch. That you give some water on our heads. That you give a morsel of bread and a few sips of wine so that we would know so that we would be assured of our forgiveness of sins and we would yearn for that feast that is to come. Speak to us this morning and always to strengthen our faith through this meal. In Jesus' name we pray.